0: Good morning. The great sound for a preacher. The rain patterning on the ceiling means I can go on and on and on. You've got nothing else to do today. You're sequestered inside, so we might as well just gather together and worship together and study together all afternoon, right? Okay, I won't uh, do that to you. Um, it's been a good week. Uh, many of you have experienced uh, T4G. I, I saw... Daniels bracelet and we communicated a little bit bracelet I guess rubber band that, that didn't sound good um, But uh, uh, we communicated yesterday about the conference a little bit. I know Troy was there Mike were you there? I just saw you weren't there you were there Tuesday night though, right? Or Wednesday night. What night did I see you? Two well, that's a part of it, you know the pre-conference. I saw Mike there at True 78 anybody else participate you did good? Anybody else? So, so a lot of us participated. We just probably need to get that on the radar. You know, next year, uh, it's actually 29 uh, It'll be what, 2020 is the next one, right? But TGC will be next year in Indianapolis. So it's just some things that we could do together and kind of sit together. We all kind of sat apart from each other. But um, uh, basically, there were 12,500 people who love Christ and are mostly in the ministry or serve in the ministry in some capacity gathering at the Yum Center down in Louisville. And so it's a pretty major conference for our city. And uh, and so its positioning and proximity to to this church is important that you can take advantage of that. So it was a good week. I hope you encouraged those that did participate. Those that did not, you can listen. They'll post those sermons online. And um, so it's a, it's a special thing in 12,000... 500 uh, mostly men, not all men, but mostly men, um, sing and and worship together and hear God's Word. So, we're basking and coming off of that experience, and we turn our attention to the book of Revelation this morning. We're in Revelation 2, verses 8 through 11, and we're in a series entitled The Seven. We're looking at the seven churches of Asia Minor, and we're trying to learn from these seven actual churches... Uh, how we can be a healthy church in the 21st century. In chapter 1 of the book of Revelation, we are introduced to the author, John, the apostle. And then we're introduced to really the senior pastor of every church, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And unfolding in chapter 1 was this amazing vision that Jesus appeared on a Sunday morning to John on the island of Patmos and said, I'm going to have you write some things down. And then he began talking in verse 18 and doesn't stop talking all the way through chapter 4 or into chapter 4, we hear the direct words of Christ. And he writes seven letters to seven specific churches. Of the seven, five of them have a criticism, a condemnation, something wrong. Last week we looked at the church of Ephesus, and it had seven great things going for it, but had one bad, an Achilles heel, and that is that they had left their first love, and so we looked at what it means to leave our first love, and how to recapture our first love there, as you see in Revelation 2, uh, 1 uh, to seven, so you can go back if you weren't here and take a look at that to keep up with this series. And so, if we were to put a caption over uh, two, one to seven, we'd put that this was the loveless church. And the lesson for us is that no matter how busy we get and how hard we serve, we must maintain first love kind of devotion, and it's very important that we, we do that. This morning, we turn our attention to the church of. Smyrna, the church of Smyrna, as found in Revelation 2, 8 to 11. Let me read the text before us just to get it into our thinking, and then we'll dive in and look at this particular church and what lesson it has for us as we plant another healthy church here in Bardstown. Jesus writes, And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The first and the last, who was dead and has come to life, says this, I know your tribulation and your poverty Ah, but you are rich and the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not but are really a synagogue of Satan do not fear what you're about to suffer behold the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for 10 days be faithful until death. And I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. Something obviously obvious should stand out to you. There's no criticism. Only two of the seven churches have no criticism. Only commendation and encouragement and kind of bolstering them to stand fast. Uh, in their faith. The first one of the two is the church of Smyrna. If we were going to put a caption um, over this particular te- text, if if 2 1-8 to eight was the loveless church, this would be the persecuted church. And I know that's a special heart for, for some of you that we pray often. We just had a prayer for the persecuted church that Daniel after he read John 15 then prayed for the church and For us to be bold in the face of of persecution. This is the text that kind of drives us as a church to appreciate and to pray for those around the world who have been persecuted and are being persecuted even as we sit here in the comfort of the West and enjoy the rainy morning and the teaching of, of God's Word. This is a church, the church of Smyrna, that did not flinch When persecuted, they did not flinch. In A.D. 156, Polycarp was martyred for Christ at the age of 86. Bishop Polycarp, as we call him in church history, was a disciple of the apostle John. Polycarp's fidelity to Jesus ultimately cost him his life. As you know, emperor worship, the worship of Caesar, was alive and well. And on the occasion, Polycarp was summoned to take an oath to Caesar and to renounce Christ. When brought before Caesar and in front of Caesar, he said the following. And I quote, 86 years have I served the Lord Jesus, he has been faithful to me. How can I be faithless to him and blaspheme the name of my savior? Immediately, they threatened him again and swore they would tear his body apart and feed him to the wild beasts. Polycarp responded again, then hand me over to the beasts. I am a Christian, even until death. The proconsul was enraged. They gathered a crowd, they seized Polycarp, and decided to burn him at the stake. They sought to bind his feet and then to nail his hand to a wooden peg so that he would not escape the flames and try to flee. As they are doing this and as they grab him, I quote again Polycarp, Put away those nails and let them be. The one who gives me strength to endure the flames will give me strength not to flinch at the stake. And indeed, the temporary fires of man took his life that day for the cause of Christ. What I haven't told you yet is that Polycarp was the pastor of the church of Smyrna. He would have received in A.D. 95 this very letter. He was, as we know when these letters are written, to the angel of the church of Smyrna. Smyrna. He was the angel. He was the messenger. He was the elder. He was in charge of the church of Smyrna. He would have read, do not fear you're about to suffer. He would have read be faithful unto death. I'm sure this very text in AD 153 bolstered and strengthened and fortified and gave Polycarp resolve to go to the fires and to be burned at the stake and not flinch. It is this very text that you look at and you hold this morning, which strengthened him and I hope will strengthen us in our day of persecution. He had read, be faithful unto death. For 40 years, Polycarp had comforted this flock through much tribulation. He refused to bow the knee to Caesar when emperor worship was hot and alive and and well. When his time came, he did not flinch. And we learn from the church of Smyrna that if you're not ready, if you are not ready to live, you are not ready to live until you are ready to die. You are not ready to actually live the abundant life as Jesus promised in John 10, 10 until you are ready to die. As a reminder, not one hint of compromise is written about the church of Smyrna. They were a faithful church. They endured up under the persecution. Five had glaring deficiencies. The church of Ephesus and Achilles heel level deficiency, not Smyrna. So let me begin by giving you a little bit of context about this particular church here and Smyrna to get you the kind of the feel of what was going on and to kind of help you kind of taste the dust that's in the roads of Palestine there or on the continent of Asia here. If Ephesus last week, I compared Ephesus to New York City just to kind of get in your mind and appreciate what we're dealing with here. So Ephesus would be compared to New York City, approximately 300,000 people in Ephesus at the time that... John wrote this under the inspiration of the Spirit. Smyrna would be like Austin. So Ephesus, New York City, Smyrna would be like Austin. It was located 35 miles from Ephesus, but still in the region and still under the influence of John. Remember, the Apostle John is not only pastoring the church of Ephesus, he has more responsibility as he goes out in clockwise fashion And checks up on these particular seven churches. So he's regionally overseeing these seven churches. It was the next major city on the Roman road. And as John would check in on all the churches in Asia Minor, this would be his second stop. And he would attend the church of Smyrna. Ephesus was called the gateway to Asia. We saw that last week. Smyrna was called the crown of Asia. The name Smyrna means mirth. It was the basis for beautiful perfume. It was the the odors that that were beautiful and the the basis for all the colognes and and perfumes. And mirth was used to mask the the odor of a decaying body in, in, in funerals. When Jesus was born, wise men came from the east bringing what? Mirth. That's the basis. That is the etymology of Smyrna. Its etymology spoke to the fact that it was a beautiful city inscribed on its currency, on its coins, was first in Asia in beauty and size. This is Smyrna. It had about 100,000 people in it. It was the center of science and medicine, and it had strong, healthy ties to Rome. Cicero said this of Smyrna. That it was our most faithful and most ancient ally. So they're tipping their hand to Rome. They're bowing the knee to Rome. They're bowing the knee to Caesar. Her allegiance, the city's allegiance to Caesar, was unquestioned and unquestionable. In 1895, it was the hub. It was the basis for Roman emperor worship. Like Ephesus, very similar, only 35 miles away. It was the hotbed for pagan worship. So, you can imagine that it made it difficult to be a Christian living in the context of pagan emperor worship. It was a wealthy city. It was a beautiful city. But it was a wicked city. Today, it is modern Izmir, Turkey. It's a city of about four and a half million Still a strong, functioning city. But here's the deal. Only two, in 4.5 million people, only two churches in Izmir or Smyrna are over 100 people in it. Only two. Only two. It was difficult in Smyrna to follow Jesus. That's what I want you to feel about this city. I want you to feel Austin... But very progressive, very secular, always tilted and tipped its hand towards Rome. So it was difficult to follow Jesus. Yet, it shouldn't have been a surprise, right? Peter said, don't be surprised when some fiery trial comes your way. It shouldn't catch you off guard as a believer when you are persecuted. It's really not if you're persecuted. It is when we are persecuted. To remind you of a few verses in the New Testament, Matthew 5, 12. They persecuted the prophets, and they will persecute you also. John fifteen eighteen, which was read this morning. If the world hates you, you know that it also has hated me before it ever hated you. Philippians 1, 28. In no way be alarmed by your opponents. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake... Not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. Acts 5.41. Those early believers left the secular council that afternoon. And they said this in Acts 5.41. That they were rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame in His name. They were rejoicing. Considered it worthy. Worthy have suffered persecution and shame. Listen, it it costs all of us to follow Jesus. And in some areas and in some places, it costs a lot more. And possibly even your life. Now, we sit here this morning in a relatively unpersecuted environment, right? I stumbled on one writer who remarked this. The only glaring weakness in Western Christianity is that nobody is trying to kill us. Interesting. The fact that we don't experience persecution could be part of our weakness, part of our liability. No persecution might make us suspicious this morning. Why do we feel nothing? Like we come and go and we do as we please pretty much. The church flourishes in persecution, by the way. Right? The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, the church fathers said. It's it's what produces a healthy church. So when you see an unhealthy church, you look back or go upstream and wonder is there any persecution there? It's crazy in the West. Health and wealth seem to be alive and and well. Which only works in the West, by the way. That's part of the The vast part of the world won't read your best life now. Probably they don't even get it. They wouldn't even have a category for it. And now you couldn't convince this small body of believers in Smyrna that the Christian life was all about ease and pleasure and simple. Life trouble free life. Oh, no, there are no get out of free trials cards in the Christian life. Here's what's remarkable about about the church of Smyrna. No hint of compromise. And they had actually gotten, as you're going to see in a moment, Satan's attention. Most of us, when we are persecuted or go through a trial and it's backed by Satan's minions, rarely do we get the undivided attention of Satan himself. They did. They actually did. So the church is not criticized by Jesus when they receive their mail. And so what I want to do is walk through this passage and give you three spiritual realities to help us face persecution. The church will be persecuted. It always is persecuted. And there has to be three spiritual realities that you constantly hold in your hand and in your heart to navigate persecution. It's not if, it's when. The three are this, Christology, Empathy, Christology, Empathy, and Eternity. Three words, Christology, Empathy, and Eternity. First, of the spiritual realities, is found there in verse 8, it is this, Jesus is bigger than death, verse 8, into the church, into the angel of the church of Smyrna, which is Polycarp, I write. The first and the last who was dead and who has come to life says this. As a reminder to his hearers. He wants to be a source of encouragement to them. He wants to remind them of robust Christology. They were weary in Smyrna. And so John begins to write, as Jesus would have him to do, to tell them about me. Look at me, in that sense there, in in verse 8. Study me. Remind yourself of me. Go deep in your Christology. Concentrate on me. When you're in persecution, you are to rivet your attention on Christ because Jesus is bigger than death. Look what the text says. He says, first there in verse 8 Jesus is the first and the last. Now we know that God is the Alpha and Omega from chapter 1, but now we see the Trinity in full form. This speaks to his eternality. He is the beginning and the end. Jesus existed before time and will continue to exist after all things come to an end. When everything's unwound, he will be. Still, Jesus is not limited by time or space. He is divine. He is God. Our suffering, in essence, is what he's trying to say. Our suffering is temporary. Jesus is not temporary. He's bigger than death. And he's saying the Roman emperor is not God. Only Jesus is God. He is Alpha and Omega. Idols and idolatry come and go. He is before them and he will remain long after them. This is what John is trying to say, that Jesus is the first and the last. He's bigger than death. Second thing he says there, he's the first and last who was dead and has come to life. He is the res- resurrection and the life. He died in ignominious death, but he didn't stay dead. Three days later, He rose from the dead. He forever lives. Jesus is the pioneer of life and of the resurrection. It is the resurrection in the face of persecution that makes us courageous. Remember what Paul said in Philippians 1.21? For me to live is Christ and to die is what? Gain. How can you say that? Because Jesus is bigger than death. There's more to this life. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. His resurrection, Jesus' resurrection, is the foretaste of our future resurrection. It's because Jesus rose from the grave. We are promised to follow and suit. As you see in Hebrews 11, they were looking for a better resurrection, a resurrection of their lives, to life eternal. Honestly, this should be enough to stiffen our resolve, right? A high Christology, an understanding that Jesus is bigger than death. He's so much bigger than death. We have nothing to fear this morning. Death is temporary. The worst thing, the worst thing that could happen to you is to someone to take your life. That's the best thing. For me to live is Christ, Paul said, and to die is gain. It will usher us into a permanent state of eternal presence. The knowledge of who Jesus is must be bigger to us than the reality of death. You have nothing to fear in death because of Jesus. And so what John says is, listen, when you're in intense persecution and you're under pressure and there's anxiety, Lean into your Christology. Remind yourselves every single day of who Christ is and how that he's bigger than death. And the worst thing that anybody could do is to take your life, but it ultimately will usher you into eternity. And so John says, listen, focus yourself. Concentrate on Christ. Focus yourself on Christology. Second, reality, spiritual reality. Is empathy. Jesus knows and feels everything. Look at verse 9. I know your tribulation and your poverty. Ah, but you're rich. And the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Empathy. There's a huge difference between sympathy and empathy, isn't it? In sympathy, you feel bad that people are going through a trial or being persecuted or something happened to them. Empathy is very different. It's like the next level. It feels the other person's pain. It's not just acknowledging it. It's heartfelt. It, you feel it. Right? And here in the text, he says, I know your tribulation. It's the word in the Greek language, "oida." It's intimate, experiential knowledge, right? Not gnosis, which is just general knowledge. It's oida, specific, intimate, personal knowledge. He knows these churches. He knows with laser accuracy, as we saw last week in the church of Ephesus, that he walks among the the lampstands and he knows the people and he knows the pastor's Intimately, he has exhaustive knowledge, and when he says, I know, he really does know. Not just saying it on the outside. When Jesus says he knows, it's experiential knowledge. We are never, folks, left alone to suffer alone. Jesus, as Hebrews 4 says, is our sympathetic high priest. He was the trailblazer. He suffered the ignominious death. He was crushed by his own father for our sin, right? He was spit upon. He was falsely accused. He was physically beaten. He was mocked. He was humiliated. He was pierced with a a sword. He died a criminal's death. He knows. He knows. He says, I know your tribulation. I'll tell you, it was a difficult time to be alive and to be a Christian. Some from church history we we know that they were accusing the believers of a number of false things. First, because we as believers call each other's brother and sister, or brothers and sisters. They were accusing the church back then of incest because of that common term, brother and sister. Second, they accused us of cannibalism as a means to attack the church because at the Lord's Lord's table, which we'll celebrate in a minute, we're eating and drinking the body and the blood of Jesus. We know a symbol. They said it was literal and accused the early church of cannibalism. Everywhere they turned, they were being persecuted. And there were a number of sources the text mentions five for them. Five sources of their, their persecution. Look at it. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. The first was pagan Roman government persecution, right? I know your tribulation. It's the very word there. That means, Lipson means to squeeze or to pressure, to crush. You either choose Caesar or Christ. That was the threat. Anything that threatened, Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, was to be persecuted, was to be squashed, was to be stomped out. The mere profession of Christ was a crime against the state. He says, I know your your tribulation. I know your persecution. The first place it came was from the government. Second, it was economic persecution. He says, I know your tribulation and your poverty. Abject poverty. Why? Because they wouldn't give them jobs. Because they professed Christ and didn't bow the knee to Caesar. And so they cost you something to be a follower of Jesus Christ. They were, they were hungry. They were in abject poverty. They couldn't get jobs. They, because they were known to threaten the free state. But he says in a parenthetical statement. But you are rich. Reminding them of being in Christ. The riches of Christ. That you are rich in Christ. As Ephesians 1 states that we are, we're heirs to the true king. We're not heirs to Caesar. We're heirs to the king of kings. And yes, we may live in poverty in this life, but certainly we'll be rewarded in the next. It's also just a counter to all the health, wealth, and prosperity teaching that's out there. They lived in abject poverty. And he says, I know your tribulation. I know your poverty, but you'll be rich one day. He didn't say, I'm going to get you out of here. Your best life's ahead of you. There's no deliverance in here. He's just recognizing, empathizing with them. Third was a religious persecution. Look at it. And the blasphemy by those who say they're Jews and are not, but they are a synagogue of Satan. Oh, they're physical Jews on the outside, but not spiritual Jews. As Romans 2, 17 to 29 talks about the, it can be Jewish by birth, but not by relationship to Christ. And the Jews loved uh, their exemption from Rome. They had an exemption from the political state and from Roman worship. And they loved that. But then they, in turn, persecuted the believers. And so John takes a shot at them. Imagine getting this letter and they're sitting there. or in the community and they're aware of this. And he says, they're owned and operated by... By Satan himself. A synagogue of Satan. That had to be a throat chop. There was a large Jewish community there in Smyrna. They would have received that. And they were slandering the believers. They were anti-Christian. They didn't believe that Jesus had come. This is AD 95. And he says you're actually a synagogue of Satan. Religious persecution. Like the Pharisees and like the Sadducees. That called for Jesus' head. Right? Slandering them. The Jews were monotheistic, but they were not believers. You'd expect you'd expect persecution from pagans, but from people who claim to have God's big book, the Old Testament, and understand who God is. These Jews, after all that God had done for them, and now they're persecuting the true Christians. Religion always gets you nowhere in life, right? It's also just a subtle reminder, just a footnote that Satan goes to church every Sunday. Right? He's inspiring all that. He's behind all that. James says that he believes and trembles. That Satan believes and trembles. The devil believes and trembles. The devil knows more theology than any of us. I can assure you. He doesn't believe it, but he knows it. Right? And so he pokes the bear and says, he's of a synagogue of Satan. Then there's physical persecution. He says, do not fear. What you're about to suffer, behold the devil himself. There it is. Is about to cast some of you into prison, so that you'll be tested and you will have tribulation for ten days. You're going to be cast in prison, short-lived ten days, but ten bad days. Roman prisons, as owned and operated there in Smyrna, were ruthless places. This was no camp cupcake like over in West Virginia, but West Virginia, where Martha Stewart went to prison at. What they call Camp Cupcake. This isn't Camp Cupcake, I can assure you. Even 10 days would, would be extremely difficult. Rome had no patience. They did not suffer prisoners well. But John says it's going to be limited. He writes a letter. He said, you're going to be thrown in prison, but it will be limited. He didn't say, hey, they're going to come arrest you, but I'm going to get you out of it, right? No, he said, you're going to go. You're going to have a 10-day sentence. Right. It's going to be worth the wait. Don't compromise. It's a. As the Apostle Paul said. A, a momentary light affliction. First Corinthians 15. Right. Finally there's satanic persecution. There. It's the synagogue of Satan. The devil is about to cast some of you in prison. So that you'll be tested. And you'll have tribulation for 10 days. Be faithful until death. Our struggles, folks, when we're persecuted are, are not from flesh and blood. As Ephesians 6 says, they're from principalities and powers. The devil is behind all persecution. Job 1, we see he's the accuser of the, the brethren. He's the slanderer of the brethren. First Peter five fourteen. he goes about like a roaring lion seeking uh, some of us to devour. It's rooted in hell itself. It's the synagogue of Satan. It's just an important note, too, that you don't pursue martyrdom. Martyrdom pursues you. Like, you don't go, if you are, you know, watching the persecuted church, these people aren't asking to be persecuted. They're not trying to get murdered. Martyrdom pursues them. And so behind this evil Roman empire stood the true evil empire, and that's Satan and the devil himself. It is a reminder to us this morning. That it will cost us to be a Christian. 2 Timothy 3.12 says this. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But persecution purifies the church. Not that I want to be persecuted, but it might be the missing link in the West at least. Right? One author said this. Out of the presses of pain cometh the soul's best wine third reality third spiritual reality eternity christology empathy eternity that's how you handle when bad things happen to you when persecution happens to you and to other people How how do you handle when bad things happen to good people? It's having a high Christology. And third, eternity. You've got to have eternity in your mind, and Jesus is worth dying for. Jesus gives two admonitions to the believers in Smyrna, and really two to us this morning. The first there is found in verse 10 Do not fear. What you're about to suffer. Don't fear man. John says do not fear man. He's trying to encourage Smyrna. He's trying to encourage us. Replace earthly fear. With a healthy fear of God. A greater fear right. As Proverbs 29. 28 says the fear of man is a snare. It must be Displaced and replaced by a healthy fear of God. He says, "Do not fear what you're about to experience." As Peter says, "Don't find it strange that you're going through a fiery trial." We have to possess a lofty and a high view of God. We we humbly kneel before his blazing righteousness. We don't want to give up rivers of eternal pleasure for a shallow cup of temporary pleasure, we've got to have eternity in mind. When we suffer, we have Christology; the, our eyes on 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 Christ, and we've got to have eternity in our minds and in our hearts. We 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 can't fear man. Jesus is worth dying for. Second, we are to be faithful unto death. At the end of verse ten, be faithful. Until death. It could be your lot in this life to suffer and die for Christ. Most likely in the West. Probably won't. But it is a gut check for us this morning. That the persecution will really reveal where you're at. It really reveals the true church. If Jesus is worth dying for, he's certainly worth living for. Right? Right? In the face of death, we're not to shrink back. We're not to flinch. This is the church that didn't flinch. We're not all called to martyrdom, but we need to all be willing to die. For me to live as Christ and to die as gain. Can you legitimately say that? Can the words come out of your mouth this morning? That's the true church. And I can tell you that Jesus is worth dying for. Caesar is never going to be worth bowing down to. Right? Right? Caesar is no God. Jesus is bigger than death. Bigger than Caesar. And he conquered all of it for us. And then he wraps it up. And he gives us some motivation. A couple things will be given to us. If we remain faithful. End of verse 10. First. I will give you the crown of life. Crown of life. One thing that was noteworthy about the city of Smyrna is they had this one hill. Remember it was the crown of Asia Minor? Remember I said that that's what people called Smyrna? It's because they had this beautiful hill that overshadowed the city. No doubt that when John's writing, he remembers his trips to Smyrna, and he probably says, Like that mountain, the the crown there in the city of Smyrna. I'll give you a crown of life. A crown which is life eternal. Great is our reward. Right? Just past the door of persecution. Just past the door of physical death is the crown of life. It's worth it. Not a royal crown. This is the crown that is referred to as the athlete's crown at the Olympian games, the wreath of vines, the victor's crown, it'll be worth it. It's a reference to your eternal life. It's an invitation. You will be given the crown of life if you endure the persecution, if you hold fast, if you stand ready and resolved The crown which is eternal life. Second. You will not experience the second death. Look at verse 11. He who has an ear. Let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. A reminder and an invitation. He who has an ear. Let him hear. What the spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes. Will not be hurt. By the second death. The first death. In scriptures called the bodily or physical death. The second death is spiritual, has to do with the soul. When the body is separated from the soul, where will it go? That is the question of the second death. And if you were to look at Revelation, you'll see this second death, Revelation 20, verse 14 and 21. 20 verse 14, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. 21 verse 8, but for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. So if you remain faithful in the midst of persecution, there is the promise that you will not be thrown into the lake of fire. That you will be crowned with life eternal. Well, may the spirit of fearlessness and faithfulness of Polycarp, who was their pastor, who read this very text, be upon all of us. We should be praying for the persecuted church. Certainly it is not easy, and most likely they will not be delivered, but we pray nonetheless, right? And the promise is not always deliverance. The promise is crown of life, and you won't experience the second death. God might free them. He might not free them. we're not going to be discouraged either. We're still going to pray because that's our responsibility in the midst of persecution, right? We should be praying for them, and we do every Sunday. So here's his last words. Polycarp, the fires are reaching his body. And this is what was recorded. The last words that came out of his mouth before he was consumed by the fire. And I'll end with this quote. "O Lord God Almighty. Father of the blessed and beloved son, Jesus Christ. I thank you for giving me this day. And this hour, that I might be numbered among the martyrs and share the cup of Jesus and to rise again to life eternal. And he died. The pastor of the church who read this very letter. I'm telling you, there is power in these letters. And there's power for us as a church plan. As we need to be cautioned never to leave our first love. We need to be reminded to be faithful in the midst of persecution. You will be persecuted. If you claim allegiance to Jesus Christ, it will be just a matter of time. Whether it's governmental, whether it's economical, whether it's you pick. There's just five listed here, but there are many forms and flavors of persecution We are reminded this morning to be faithful in the midst of persecution and to pray for fellow believers to be faithful all over the world who are being persecuted. There are people that were beheaded this year because of their faith in Jesus Christ. We come to church, you know, the the biggest stress was how was I going to get from the truck to the door without getting too much water on me. Well, that's not a concern when you're under persecution, Right? When you're under persecution and when you're at war, you're not worried about who's mowing your yard. You're not worried. Or, Did we feed the puppy this morning? You know, we, on the West, we, we just get a little comfortable, right? We get a little forgetful of what it means to be a sold-out, red-hot follower of Christ. But this is the kind of church that gets commendation. Not condemnation, but commendation. That, that, that you go, man... That's the kind of church I want to be a part of. That's a healthy church. Not a perfect church. There are no perfect, but it is a healthy church. And we have much to learn from Smyrna. And from Polycarp, their pastor, when he was called upon to be burned at the stake. He says, you don't even need to tie my hands up. You don't need to nail, you don't need to nail my feet or tie my feet up. I'll stand in the fires as you like them. He never walked away. never flinched. So let's be that church here in Bargetown that doesn't flinch. In the face of persecution, it doesn't get like, wow, I can't believe that happened to me or our family. No, no. Let's not be that. And then when it does happen, let's respond like this that we don't have a fear of man, that it's worth every ounce of persecution in your life to follow Jesus Christ. You're going to be crowned, right? And you are not going to experience the second death. You have hope. And hope is everything. Hope is everything. We have much to learn from the church of Ephesus and we have much to learn from the church of Smyrna. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for Polycarp's example. That when tested, he grew faithful. Lord, I pray for Churches all over the world and pastors all over the world who are being persecuted by a variety of forms. I pray for them, Lord, that they would remain steadfast, that they would not fear man, that they would fear you. And that you would give them the strength to stand in the fires of persecution. Lord, if it's your will, we ask you to deliver them. Give them another day to testify of your faithfulness. I know they're saying for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. They get it. We pray for them. And Lord, as we suffer persecution, help us to be reminded of Christology, of who you are. Help us to be comforted by your empathy that you were the first to be martyred and to be crushed. Perfectly innocent and crushed for sinful man. And help us to remember eternity and to put eternity in our hearts that this persecution is momentary light affliction and that we have all eternity to rejoice, to be comforted, to be in your presence. Lord, help us to learn from Smyrna. Help us to be faithful like Polycarp and to be examples to others all around us of what it means to be persecuted and to be faithful. In the midst of persecution. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.